you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. Exodus. Going back to Scripture reading, since we've been going back a lot. Going back to our Scripture reading, I meant to mention that we are redoing our list. We put it together probably two, two and a half years ago. It's been a while. So I have our list down here, um, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, after services, if you want your name added on the list... If you uh, weren't on there for, from two years ago, you want to be a part of our scripture reading, then please come up here and add your name. If your name has been on the list and you're not able to do it anymore, uh, then you can come mark your name off. Uh, we've, we're going to have a little bit of sh- uh, changes, but I'm going to update the list sometime this week. And so if you want to be on there, or if you don't want to be on there, please let that be known uh, so we can get that ready to go. All right, Exodus 20, chapter 14. Or, uh, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. We are continuing looking at the Ten Commandments, these ten words of, of life for us, these ten words that God has given us to show us who He is, to reflect our sinful, uh, our, our complete sinfulness and our need for Him, and to point to the perfect salvation that Christ gives us. Let me tell y'all a funny story, and it's Father's Day so I can get away with it, Okay. I can't tell this story on Mother's Day, but I can tell it on Father's Day. So when Jordan and I had been dating for a little bit, we used to get together every weeknight, and we'd, uh, we'd go out on Monday, and on Mondays, we'd cash my check. I made $150 a week. I spent about 30 of that a week, 35 of that a week on gas to get to the church that I worked at, and then uh, you know another 15 was tithe and offering, so I had a very limited amount, and so our grocery budget was $30. And so every Monday, Jordan and I would drive to New Albany, and we'd spend $30, and we'd get five meals that week, and then she'd come over to my apartment, and we'd cook together, and we'd eat a meal together, and every meal, every, we did that, $30 a week. And I think, how in the world did we find five meals for $30? But we did. And so uh, there was one night we had just finished eating, and, uh, and it, we, we had had it really nice. I lit a nice little candle. We ate on my coffee table um, in the living room. It was very high class. And, uh, and I lit a candle on the coffee table. And I go and I'm cleaning up. And Jordan is sitting in the, in the living room. And I come back in. And she has a napkin from supper. And she's sticking it in the candle. Lighting the candle on, lighting the napkin on fire, and I said, "What are you doing?" And uh, it catches on fire, and not only that, but then she accidentally drops it into the candle, which means that it gets the wax on the napkin, which means that the fire is burning out of control. I have this mini mini uh, torch in my in my apartment here and I'm thinking we're gonna burn the entire apartment down and I said why did you do that and you know what she does she looks at me and she says I don't know smoky bear <laughs> like like I'm the one I'm the problem here right and I said you can't play with fire and she looks at me like I'm, you know, I'm the one who's in trouble. And then she says, you better not tell my parents. And I said, we've got to get this out, right? And so it was very, out of, it was very uncharacteristic of my sweet, lovely wife. But apparently, you know, she had a problem. So long story short, uh, I decide I'm going to throw some water on there. But what I don't realize is that the glass is so hot that when I pour water on there, it shatters the glass. And so in a last-ditch effort, I throw a towel over the whole thing and smother it and put it out, and we save the day, right? Why did I tell you that story? One, it's Father's Day and I can get away with it. 
That's part of it. Um, two, I don't think her parents ever heard about that. And her mom listens to my sermons. So that's number two. Um, and number three, fire is a very good thing. Fire is a very good thing. But fire is only good in its proper enclosement, right? Fire is great in, in the fire pit, right? Fire is great when it's contained and when it's being able to use to cook with, right? Or when it's being able to use to warm. How many of us would love to, to settle down in front of a nice warm fire on a cold winter's night? But fire is destructive when it's taken out of its proper enclosure and placed somewhere else. Fire, uh, we've seen just recently, it seems like every summer we turn on the news and California is having another uh, spout of wildfires. And these fires are ravishing the land. We went to Montana a few years ago and you could see the smoke coming over the mountain because there were fires on the other side of Glacier National Park. And the whole city was hazy with this fire. Fire is destructive. Some of you have experienced this in your personal life. You've had uh, friends who have had houses burned to the ground. You've had houses burned to the ground. You've had uh, fires get out of control when you're burning uh, your land. And, and it, there's a scary moment there when you think, if I can't get this under control, we're going to have big problems. Fire is good, but fire outside of its proper enclosure is deadly. Well, the same goes for our commandment today. We come to commandment chapter 14, or chapter 20, verse 14, and we read this. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. We know that the word of God is living and breathing. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce between soul and spirit of joints and marrow, even dividing the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you today as your people, weak and needy for your voice. We pray, Father, that your word would give us strength, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, help me to properly uh, proclaim your word and that you would help um, our congregation to properly hear your word. We pray, Father, that as James said, we would not be hearers only, but doers as well. And we pray that by doing so, we would honor you and glorify your name. We thank you for your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A pretty simple command, black and white. God forbade adultery in the life of Israel. The positive way that we could say that is that the Bible reminds us that marriage, the sanctity of marriage, is the only proper outlet for sexual desires. And so marriage, as constituted by the scriptures, as constituted in the creation narrative in Genesis, are the only proper enclosure for sex. So the Bible reminds us of the sanctity of marriage and the dangers of unrestrained sexual desire. So today we want to understand the sanctity of marriage, why God gives us this command, how this command helps us and is a benefit to us, and how we can guard ourselves against sexual impurity. So the question we want to ask is why does God forbid adultery? Why does God forbid, forbid adultery? And I have three reasons for us today. The first reason why God forbids adultery is found in the book of Genesis. The first reason is that God created marriage for our benefit. So if you just kind of put your finger right there on Exodus and flip back just one book, we'll go to the very front of the Bible, 
In Genesis, we'll be looking in chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We see something, that God creates this wonderful paradise. He creates the world. He looks at it. He says, this is good. He creates man. He says, let us create man in our own image. After image of God, let us create them. Male and female, let us create them. And he creates them and he says, this is not just good, it's good, very good. And then we hear another aspect of the story. And this aspect is from Adam's viewpoint. So we come to Adam's viewpoint and we see in verse 18, in verse 18, we read this in chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. This is the first time in the creation narrative that we find that something is not good. Something is not perfect. And what is that? He says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. But there's a problem. Adam is there and God says it's not good. It is not good that Adam would be alone. And so what does God do? God then gives Adam a job. He says, Adam, it's not good that you're alone. So here, let me bring forth every animal that's created before you so that you can name them. It's Adam is exercising a kingly right here, right? Whatever Adam says, Adam is now taking on the same thing that God did, right? What God said happened, and now God gives some of that divine initiative, that divine power to Adam. And when Adam calls it a horse, that's its name. He's declaring it, right? But there's a problem. Adam sees every animal, every fish, every creature. It walks before them, and none, none are sufficient to be his helpmate. I love dogs. And sometimes I read stories and I think, dogs. Man, I'm telling you, we read stories about these dogs that are so faithful. Uh, one of the saddest things you'll ever see is you'll see uh, I, when, when soldiers come home and see their family. I'm telling you, those, the, those videos, that, I mean, they'll make grown men weep. I don't care if you're the strongest father in here. You see a video like that, you will cry. And likewise, when, when those soldiers come home and their dogs see them, right? And you think, a dog shouldn't know that. And yet a dog, I mean, they are just, there's a reason why we call them man's best friend. But they're not a helpmate. Adam named dog, but it was not sufficient to be his helpmate. And so what does the Lord do? In verse 21, it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made, he formed, he fashioned into a woman and brought her to the man. And what does Adam do? The first song in Scripture is Adam singing when he sees his wife. Uh, another uh, you love to see on wedding days when the groom sees the bride for the first time. And this is exactly what's happening here. Adam sees, after he's seen everything else, there's nothing that is a perfect helpmate. And now here comes woman. The first thing that Adam does is he burst into song. And he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why does God forbid adultery? God forbids adultery because he created the unit of marriage. 
He created it for our benefit. There are only two things that come out of Eden that survived the fall. Two ordinances, two commands, and that is marriage and the Sabbath day. God gave man marriage for our good. It is a blessing. We often, we often joke about marriage and we joke about the old ball and chain or we joke about the difficulties of marriage and marriage is hard. But marriage is a gift. It is a blessing. It is a way in which God sanctifies us and grows us. God created marriage for our benefit and he, he as the creator, defines marriage. How does he define it? He defines it as a man leaving his father and mother and cleaving, holding fast to his wife. One man, one woman for a lifetime. They become one flesh. Not only do they become one flesh, they are together. It is for their benefit. It is for their mutual benefit. They they then are able to help one another and love one another. They complement one another as puzzle pieces, right? They have different different functions in the household, and yet they complement one another. But it's not just for our benefit, but we also see this is tied to procreation. That God gives us marriage so that we can have families. We can have stable families. They are to leave their father and mother and start a new family. Cleave to your wife. Hold fast to your wife. In fact, this very one flesh union is seen in our children. Our children are not two people, and yet they came from two people. They, they are now this one flesh. They are a walking testimony of our marriages. So God gives us marriage for this reason, that it would be a reminder to us of his goodness, of our benefit. This is what marriage looks like in a perfect world. But as we know, the Bible doesn't stop in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 3 comes very quickly after that. And in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were given the command not to eat from the tree in the garden. And yet they take of this fruit. By doing so, they, they reject the idea that God loves them and wants the best for them. They reject this idea. They say, no, I want to be God. By taking it, their eyes are opened and sin enters the world. Genesis chapter 2 ends with the declaration that that man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What is shame in a world that is perfect? There's no such a thing. And yet, what we read is as soon as their eyes were opened, they were ashamed. Shame had entered in the world. Lies had entered the world. Blame had entered the world. Death had entered the world. And so God comes. And God asks Adam... What have you done? And men, this is not the right answer. What Adam was about to say. What does Adam say in Genesis chapter 3? He says, the wife you gave me made me do it. God looks at Eve and says, what happened? And Eve said, the serpent tempted me to do it. And we see a, a curse upon man and woman. And we, we read in Genesis chapter 3 that God says to the serpent, I will put enmity. There will be, there will be a constant battle between, between you and the seed of woman. There will be a constant struggle. He looks at woman and he tells woman, because of your sin, you, you will hurt in childbirth. Childbearing will not be easy as it used to be. He looks at man and he says, the, the ground will not give you fruit like it used to give you. And then he tells man and woman this. He tells them, he tells them this perfect relationship that he had created, this marriage that he created, he tells them that now to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall take rule over you. That word desire is used very, uh, in, in, in one more sense in the Bible, right after that in chapter 4, 
when God tells Cain, sin desires you. In other words, it says your desire will be for your husband. That's not saying that you'll just love your husband. No, it means that you'll desire to overcome your husband, to usurp your husband, to take his control, to rule over him. And his desire will be to rule over you and not justly rule, but to, but to crush you, to suppress you. In other words, because of sin, men and women, marriage now is broken. And that marriage is more difficult than it had to be. And we look around in our society and we see that. Every one of us in here has been touched in our family by some sort of, uh, of divorce. We have that. It's, it's the product of a sinful age. And so what do we do about that? Well, we see that there's a reason why God had to give us the command, do not commit adultery. There's a reason because you and I as sinners, we have broken the command and we seek to break the command. Sin now lives within us. Adam's sin flows through our body because Adam's blood is our blood. We take upon his sin and we act it out. This is original sin and we see it all in our life. God created marriage for our benefit and often we take it and twist it for, for what we think is our benefit. And because of that, we mar the image of marriage. The first reason why God forbids adultery is because it's for our benefit. The second reason why he forbids adultery is because God created marriage to reflect his covenant. God says, you shall not commit adultery. If you fast forward a little bit, you've got to go to the, front, the, the back of the Bible. Now go to the book of Ephesians and look in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We come to the book of Ephesians, and Paul is going to show us uh, what marriage is for. What is marriage for? We live in a day and age where we often think that marriage is for us. It's for our benefit. It's only for our benefit. But the scriptures speak of marriage as something so much broader than that. When you go to a modern-day wedding, it's missing something that used to be in a lot of weddings. It's missing a, a statement. Anybody know what that statement may be? We don't say it, and probably for good reason, because at any wedding, there's always that crazy uncle, right? And they're always going to answer it. But if you remember, if you watch an old tape of a wedding, or you watch maybe a, uh, maybe, maybe a TV show of a wedding, they may say it. And that statement is, is there anyone here who objects to these two getting married? It's often not said, probably for good reason. But why in the world would we ask the congregation, why would we ask the audience to have a say-so in marriage? We often say marriage is between me and him, me and him, or me and her, and y'all don't have a say in it. Except we see that marriage is so much broader than that. It's not just individualistic. It's just not, it's not just turned inward. Marriage is an outward picture. This is what Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, he gives instruction to men and women within the context of marriage. In verse 21, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with his word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, spot, without spot or wrinkle 
or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. What what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that your marriage isn't just about you. Your marriage isn't just about your family, but your marriage is a divine picture of Christ, the Lord of the universe, and his love for his church. And so as we, men and women, work in the context of marriage, God God shows us that that covenant that we made together, that reflects a divine reality. So he tells women, he says, women, submit to your husband as Christ, as the church submits to Christ. In other words, help your husband. Come beside him. Don't try to take authority from him. No, instead, compliment him in the things that God has gifted you in doing. Compliment him as the church submits to Christ. And then he tells husbands. And husbands, we think maybe we get off a little bit better because we're not told to submit. Except, except the command to husbands is love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for the church. In other words, he gave his very life for the church. Every action that he committed in this life was to bring his father glory by saving a people for himself. And that people is before you. It's the church. Did Christ love the church? Yes, he bled and died for the church. He went to the grave for the church. He defeated death for the church. And so you and I as husbands and fathers, we are called to sacrifice every single day to die to ourselves for our wives, for our families. This is the meaning of marriage. This is why adultery is forbidden because adultery is very self-centered. It says, I'm going to get my own passions. I'm going to chase my own desires. And yet the biblical message from Paul is that husbands, you will crucify your desires. You will crucify those errant thoughts. Paul elsewhere says in 1 Corinthians that we will take every thought captive to the word of God. We will not allow anything to get in between us and our love for our wives and our family. So we will crucify not only our sexual desires, we will not only crucify uh, those, we will crucify our, our, our political desires, maybe our desires for power, maybe our desires for our occupations. No, we'll we'll crucify those because we love our families and our families come first. Work does not come first. No, our families come first. Our hobbies do not come first. No, our families come first. We love the Lord our God. And so because we love him, we will raise our children to love him too. And we will serve our wife as Christ served us. Why does God forbid adultery? Because he created marriage to reflect his covenant. Husbands, you can, you can commit adultery on your wife when Christ does to the church. You can, you can stop sacrificing yourself for your wife when Christ stops sacrificing himself for his church. But that day will never come. No, we are called to love and to cherish, to support. Not just physically, but emotionally as well. And we come to the third reason why God forbids adultery. And this is revealed in the Sermon on the Mount. This is revealed in the teachings of Jesus. Jesus reveals to us the destructive nature of unrestrained sexual desires. If you would, turn with me to the book of Matthew.
Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Jesus says this. Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that the whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that the whole body go into hell. What does Jesus show us? The Pharisees had taken this command, do not commit adultery. And they had said, as long as I don't commit the I'm okay. And praise God, we have many men in our world that have not committed the physical act of adultery. But Jesus is going to take the heart of the command and show that none of us, none of us keep this command 100%. That all of us fall short of the glory of God. And he says this, You have heard, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in your heart. In other words, what God says, what Jesus says, Jesus uh, in his divine command tells us that the very act of looking, the very act of thinking breaks the heart of the command. And he tells us that this is destructive. He reminds us as men and as women that we do not build emotional bridges with people that are not our wives, that are not our husbands. We do not give ourselves to any other man or woman. No, we, we have a wife, we have a husband, and we invest in them. Because we know how slippery a slope it is. No one wakes up on Monday morning and says, Today, I'm committing adultery. No, it is a slow walk into sin. It begins with a look, and then a thought, and then imagination, and then a touch. It begins slowly. And it devolves into destruction. How often have we seen this to be the case in our own life? How many friends and family do we have that have been affected because of unfaithfulness? I have personally seen in my life where I have good friends whose father has committed these sins. The father as a pastor. And I was there with the son when the father tried to call his son and talk to him. And the son said, Dad, I wanted you to marry me. Not anymore. It's very easy for us to slip into sin. And by doing so, we lose our family. We don't just lose our wife. We lose our children. We lose moral credibility because we could not restrain our desires. Fire is good in the fireplace. But don't let it into the forest. Sexual desire was made for the context of marriage, but it is not made to run amok in the community. No. Jesus reveals how destructive it is. How destructive is it? He tells us something radical. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Having two eyes is good, but having two eyes and going to hell is not worth it. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. We may say, well, Jesus wasn't being literal there, but I think he's being pretty literal, right? 
It's better to go into heaven deformed. It's better to go into heaven not with all your body parts than to fall into hell because you cannot contain your lust. It's destructive. It burns. Why does God say do not commit adultery? It's not because He doesn't want us to have fun. It's not because He doesn't understand what it's like to be a man. It's not because He doesn't understand what it's like to be a human. No. He says it because this is what's best for human flourishing. This is what's best for me. This is what's best for you. It's the same reason why I tell my son not to play in the road. It's dangerous and it's destructive. And it will hurt. So what's the application for us today? You shall not commit adultery. Well, we have three applications today. When you wake up on Monday morning, this are the three, these are the three things I want you to be able to take and to live out. The first one is that God forgives and restores. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. Everyone has broken this commandment. Everyone has broken every commandment God has ever given in the Ten Commandments. We are hopelessly sinful. We need a Savior who is perfect. We need someone who looks at the Ten Commandments and who has lived a perfectly righteous life and who can offer that life to God in the judgment and say, this is all my righteousness. You and I cannot do that. We need a substitute. And Jesus comes, walks upon this earth, is tempted in every way that we are, and yet is flawless, spotless. And so we read in Ephesians that he will wash the church in the water of his word and present her spotless, without blemish. We need Jesus. Jesus offers forgiveness for every sin. Every single sin. We look at a man like David, a man after God's own heart, who not only commits adultery, but backs it up with murder and lies and deceit. And yet we read Psalms. Where we read where David writes, Lord, do not hold my sin against me. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned, but wash me. Wash me with hyssop. Clean me. Clean me so that I can proclaim, so I can proclaim your goodness to the people. Does God offer forgiveness? Yes. First John, we are told that Jesus Christ is our righteous mediator. And if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is forgiveness and restoration. Today, Maybe you need to seek the forgiveness that the Lord offers. Maybe you need to come before him and say, Lord, I am sorry that I have allowed my thoughts and my actions to lead to destructive places. Lord, I know what I've seen this week. I know what I've allowed my eyes to to follow after this week. And Lord, forgive me and kill that desire in me. Kill those sins in me. Because if we will not kill the sins in us, they will kill us. And so we pray, Lord, forgive us of these things. Maybe, maybe we have to go to our wives and maybe we have to say, sorry, I'm sorry. Please forgive me for the things that I have done in my past. Maybe we should go to our children and say, I have not been perfect, but I know someone who is perfect. God offers forgiveness and restoration. There is hope in the gospel. There is hope when we fall a thousand times because God forgives a thousand and one. But not only does God forgive and restore. Secondly, God's design for marriage is worth waiting for. God's design for marriage is worth waiting for. There are many in here who are not married yet. And that's fine. God has not designed marriage for everyone. Paul says, I wish that the whole church would be like me. 
uh, free to devote their entire self to the gospel. But God does design marriage for some, for many. And God's design for marriage is worth waiting for. And so we pray, Lord, protect me, keep me from breaking this commandment before, before I am ready to meet the one you have prepared for me. There is nothing more important for our children and our youth to protect than God's design for life. And so we pray, Lord, keep me from these things. Keep me from my unrestrained desires. Keep me. God's design for marriage is worth waiting for. And last but not least, God's word calls us to be vigil in protecting our marriages. Satan hates your marriage. Satan wants to destroy your marriage. Satan wants to take your marriage and to break it into a thousand pieces and to to, to throw its ashes all over your life. He wants to hurt you and harm you. He wants to build a wall between you and your wife, wives and your husbands. He wants to break you because he knows by doing so, he will hurt you and your children and your credibility and your morality, and he will take it all. And if Satan can snatch angels from heaven and pastors from pulpits and deacons from deacon boards, then he can take church members from pews. And so we protect, we protect our marriages. We steward our marriages. We do everything we can to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, we do everything we can to love our husbands and to guard and to keep it. It is worth protecting. It's worth it. So we fight for this. We are vigil. We praise God for His strength in the good times and we plead for His strength in the rough times. And we confess that though we may fail time and time again, Christ offers forgiveness. And we rest in that forgiveness. This morning, this morning, maybe, maybe this idea of marriage, this idea of a Savior who takes away the sins of the world, maybe that's new to you. Maybe you're hearing it for the first time and maybe you say, that's, that's what I want. I'm less concerned about the, the command not to commit adultery. I'm more concerned with the fact that I am a sinner and I need a Savior. This morning is the day to place your faith in Jesus, to repent of your sins. There's nothing you can do about your past sins except trust in the Savior who gives you a future. And so this morning, if you have not trusted in Jesus, today is the day. But this morning, it's Father's Day. It's Father's Day. And maybe for Father's Day, we need to fall upon our faces before the Lord and say, Lord, help me. Help me to guard my marriage. Help me to love my children. Help me to keep this commandment because you are worthy. You are worthy. This can only be done through the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. And praise God, he gives it in abundance. This morning, we serve a mighty God who redeems and restores. We we serve a God who gives strength and confidence. So we trust in him so that we can be men and women who keep this command and trust in the mighty Savior who kept it for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this morning that you would help us. Father, marriage is difficult. Relationships between husbands and wives are difficult. 
All have fallen short of your glory. All have sinned in this area, Lord. And we are desperate for your forgiveness. And we are desperate for restoration. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us your Holy Spirit in abundance. That you would save this morning. That you would restore this morning. That you would protect the people in this room this morning. You would protect them from the wiles of Satan. And that you would guard them so that we'd be able to come before you in the last day spotless, washed by the water of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.